Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's what we're giving with this legislation, that from 2035 onwards, it's not allowed to put on the market cars that emit CO2 or other pollutants. And let me just really say very clearly, what we're saying is zero emission at the tailpipe. So if industry thinks they can build cars with combustion engine that can lead to zero emission, they're free to do that. The European Union is supposed to be phasing out internal combustion cars by 2035. It's one of the bloc's key climate change proposals. But the plan has hit a snag, as Germany has raised objections. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz welcoming European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen to the country. She was invited to a closed meeting of the Cabinet on Sunday, just days after a decision on phasing out combustion engines was postponed because of German demands. Von der Leyen said it was important. This week on EU Confidential, we ask, is the EU's climate change agenda being held hostage by the German car industry? And is the row over the future of the internal combustion engine turning into a Franco-German war? And later in the podcast... I caught up with Bill Browder, businessman and longtime Putin critic. He's been at the European Parliament in Strasbourg this week, highlighting the plight of political prisoners in Russia and Georgia. It's a shame. EU is thought of as being the most humane and moral of all the country groupings, but they don't want to uphold human rights and they're not using the Magnitsky Act. And I think it's a complete, utter failure on their part not to use this tool, which which is a very powerful tool. I'm Suzanne Lynch, Politico's chief Brussels correspondent. This week, I'm coming to you from the European Parliament in Strasbourg. Now, joining me on today's show is Josh Posaner, our senior policy reporter covering transport. Good to have you with us, Josh. Hi, Suzanne. And Hans van der Burchard, our senior politics reporter covering Germany. Hi there, Hans. Hello from Berlin. Josh, just to start this conversation and let's dig down to what's happening with this new tension that we're seeing over this proposal to phase out the internal combustion engine by 2035. Why did the Commission introduce this proposal in the first place? What was it supposed to do? Let's just start at that point. 
Okay, so you might remember a few years ago, Suzanne, there was this whole movement within the commission to start amping up green policies very, very quickly, part of the Green Deal. And the revision of what is called in EU speak, the CO2 emission standards for cars and vans was one of the very early proposals that the commission made. It was reported exclusively by us at the time that the commission planned to end the sale of polluting anything more than zero emission vehicles, vans and, and cars specifically from 2035 onwards. So we're at the end of that two year almost process of talking about that law now and everything was settled and agreed. So we thought. Okay, and now what's happened is that we've had a a late intervention by Germany on this. An extremely late intervention, or I would say unprecedented pretty much. And this is extremely important as we'll get into it a bit, because it doesn't just have huge implications for the EU's car market and the transport sector, but it has far broad implications for the EU's entire green agenda. And while senior politicians are trying to put this under wraps and insist it's a technical issue, it's become way, way more than that. So what is Germany's concern? Germany is obviously the EU's biggest car-making country. The car industry accounts for a big wadge of national GDP. And so clearly Berlin politicians have always had a big interest in protecting the industry. This is nothing new. This was uh, the case all throughout the Merkel years too. But this time there was a kind of understanding that actually movement was needed, that if the EU wants to be climate neutral by 2050, they're going to have to do something about the millions of grossly polluting vehicles that are already out on the road and at some point stop the sale of new polluting vehicles. And by the way, I mean, this is something I think we could maybe get into later into the conversation more. But what the EU was doing was catching on in other major markets. Japan, for example, is looking at very similar legislation. Parts of the US were also doing the same. And so for the EU now to backtrack because of Germany at the last minute has huge implications. Yeah, I mean, it seems to have taken a lot of people by surprise here. Germany, of course, by far the biggest economy, the biggest member of the EU. And I mean, I've been covering the EU a long time and you do hear whispers around the corridors that, you know, Germany trying to get its own way on certain files. Hans, how has it gone down among other EU countries? Does Germany have support elsewhere on this issue? Well, it has some support from other countries like Italy and also from the Czech Republic, Poland, Uh, So there are certain countries, also Bulgaria is also not very happy about this uh, new law. But what is very striking is indeed, as Josh mentioned, this very late intervention by Berlin. The law was already agreed. Germany had voted in favor of it in the council where ministers get together. So that was the official vote. It had been going through the European Parliament. And now we're really at this very last stage, almost like an administrative stage where it just needed to be signed into the law and ministers needed to agree again to it. And at that stage, Germany said, well, hang on, actually, we're not happy with it. And this is very much to do also with what I see as a misunderstanding here in Berlin, how the legislative process in Brussels worked. The uh, Free Democrats, the FDP, one of uh, Olaf Scholz's coalition partners, thought all the time that they could get a way to save German cars beyond 2035, and they didn't. And now at the very last stage, they intervened. So Josh, what is the German solution here? What are they proposing? The Germans, and it seems effectively only the Germans, would like this very specific loophole in the text allowing the use of cars and vans running only on e-fuels, which can be used just in a normal combustion engine to replace petrol or diesel. If they're produced with renewable energy, they're synthetic fuels effectively, and if they're produced using renewable energy, 
they can be carbon neutral overall. So that means that to produce them, you suck CO2 out of the atmosphere and that mitigates, counteracts the CO2 that comes out of the tailpipe. Now, it sounds quite nice in theory, but actually these fuels don't really exist yet. There's some pilot projects in Chile, uh, elsewhere in the world. And regardless, the very small volumes that exist today of these fuels would be better used, so green campaigners say, in decarbonizing aviation, the shipping sector, where it's far more difficult to deploy electric batteries uh, because of the weight problem there. So e-fuels to Germans uh, come across as a very easy fix for saving the combustion engine, but in reality, they don't exist yet and they're very, very expensive. So this is their alternative, saying we don't have to phase out regular cars. In fact, we can use e-fuels instead. But what you're saying is it's not as simple as that, as you've just explained. Yeah. Hans, what's your view on this? Well, it's certainly true that e-fuels are not there yet. But at the same time, we're also looking a very long time into the future. So we're talking about post-2035. And I think this is the argument of uh, the Free Democrats, the smallest coalition party in this three-party coalition in Berlin. They are saying that we should not completely discard this option. So obviously, they have an interest because they have been losing some uh, very important regional elections in Germany. It's not go- Politically, it's not going too well for them. They're down to about 5% in the general polls. So they're now looking for, of course, an, an issue that they can bring up where they can mobilize also their voter base. And they think that they have found it in this e-fuel debate because this whole car industry is really important to Germany. And if we're really phasing out the internal combustion engine in new vehicles um, as of 2035, that means that maybe the big car makers can change. They can change to uh, electric vehicles. But a lot of suppliers, companies uh, that produce the pistons and other things that we need for the engine, uh, the valves, etc., they will effectively lose their market. So there are different numbers going around. Some people say that up to 900,000 jobs in Germany might be in danger. Perhaps the overall number won't be that high, but the FTP clearly sees a way here to really go in there and say, like, we should not discard this technology. Let's see how e-fuels will fare in the future. If they won't work, then nobody will buy those cars and then we won't need them anyway, but we should not discard this option. Just to say, I mean, 900,000 jobs that Hans just, just mentioned, that, that completely discounts the jobs that will be created by battery production plants that are already being built by the likes of Volkswagen in the north of the country and elsewhere. And there, there's a huge um, question about the threat to Germany's way of doing business because of this legislation. However, there have been decades in which the industry could have prepared for this transition anyway, like other companies have done other industries. And just to add a, a very important point on this legislation, Just because the EU is banning the sale or wants to ban the sale of new combustion engine cars and vans from 2035 does not mean that people will have to ditch the existing fleet that will be on the road already. So you can still buy a polluting vehicle just before that 2035 cutoff, which means e-fuels could be used very effectively in the the fleet of 490 million cars that will already be on, on the EU's roads by that date. Okay, interesting clarification for all our drivers listening on this. But this is why it's such a fascinating debate politically, because it's really pitting the idea of of climate change and those priorities against industry. And and as Hans, you made a very good point there, you know, legitimate questions about industry and concerns about jobs. But then, Josh, as you pointed out, there will be other jobs created in the battery sphere itself. Josh, what are the chances of the German idea on e-fuel getting traction? Uh, Will Germany get its way on this in Brussels? So this is a very, very technical question now, and it's a very difficult thing to fix because Germany has spent a long time over the last year 
trying to fiddle a way through to get its way here. But the crux here is that even though the production of e-fuels catches CO2 from the air, it still emits CO2 from the exhaust of a vehicle. And that means that fundamentally, e-fuels cannot be allowed under this legislation. And it's a very difficult way of getting around that without completely reopening the whole negotiation around the, the legislation, which... First of all, the European Parliament doesn't want to do and has been very clear about. But more importantly, France over recent days has been very, very clear, including from Bruno Le Maire, the economy minister, and from uh, Clement Byrne, the transport minister, both of whom are very close allies of Emmanuel Macron, that they have no interest in this German uh, workaround. And actually, they will, as they put it, fight to stop it. I would add, though, that I think there's no way that Germany backs down on this claim now. So they're really adamant and uh, the free Democrats that are pushing that month for the e-fuels actually feel emboldened now because in the German general public, actually, the strong push that they're doing for e-fuels and for saving the internal combustion engine beyond 2035 is playing out very well for them. Uh, there was a poll uh, just this week saying that 68% of Germans don't want this phase of, of the internal combustion engine. And it, it feels like something nostalgic to Germans. So there might be uh, technical reasons why e-fuels are certainly not the best solutions. But for the Germans, they feel very strongly and actually by day by day stronger that they don't want to discard this option. And uh, maybe there will be enough people who still want to buy a vehicle with e-fuels beyond uh, 2035. Yeah, interesting. It's become such a political issue in Germany. And as you mentioned there, Josh, France, one of the big opponents of this. I mean, Bruno Le Maire, the economy minister, coming out this week and saying he thinks it's an environmental mistake and an economic mistake. Finally, do you think this issue you know, could get to EU leaders level next week this summit? Could we ha be seeing a, a kind of a, a Berlin-Paris powwow on this? Because we're really seeing the two major countries in the EU on different sides on this. There's a chance. Uh, nobody wants to see that happen because that will mean most likely a very messy compromise deal in the great traditions of uh, EU leaders' summits going through the night. So expect this to be dealt with by ministers at some point over the next few weeks. But ju just to say, because this has profound implications for moving forward on a serious piece of climate legislation is for the first time in the last few weeks, you have a very well-coordinated alliance of countries, Germany, Italy under the populist uh, government there, also Poland, as Hans mentioned, Bulgaria, uh, the Czechs. My reporting is that on Monday when they had their first summit in Strasbourg, there were more countries on uh, via video conference. And this is very significant because it means that these guys have a blocking minority and they can do this not just on the caste legislation, but on various pieces of, of law coming along the runway moving forward. And frankly, Even if France really fights against this, these guys, these countries under Germany, the Czechs, the Italians, have enough of the EU population to block any legislation. So do you think that Germany's position here, Germany has kind of emboldened a lot of, let's face it, more right-wing governments and countries on this issue and it's kind of holding the EU's climate agenda to hostage here? Diplomats are telling me they're already seeing in working groups discussing extremely wonky arcane legislation, a renewed, emboldened, as you say, push by countries to start saying, well, look, if Germany can do this at the last second on agreed legislation, then maybe we should be a bit more vocal in our uh, opposition. And this whole tradition around consensus building within the great uh, European family of nations risks being critically undermined by the biggest country bailing out. Right, I agree. And this is a really big issue because especially Germany, the new government, which has the Greens in the government, has always been saying that they want an ambitious 
climate agenda to move the EU forward with the Green Deal. And now they're becoming the main force, potentially undermining the Green Deal. So the spillover effects of this, uh, the danger that Germany really sets a dangerous precedent here, also for other countries, holding up legislation hostage at the very last level. This is now really polluting, uh, no pun intended, uh, the EU's Green Deal agenda. We'll leave it at that. Thanks so much to Josh and Han for joining us. And we'll be keeping a close eye on this as it progresses. Thanks, Suzanne. Thanks, Suzanne. And Hans and Josh will be back at the end of the episode to help us decode this week's Brussels jargon, our regular slot, where we try and explain some of the more opaque words used in the European Union. So do stay tuned for that. But coming up right after this short break, my discussion with Bill Browder on his campaign for justice for those imprisoned by Vladimir Putin and the need for the EU to do more on sanctions. Stay with us. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So I'm joined by Bill Browder, leader of the Global Magnitsky Justice Campaign. And he's been here this week in Strasbourg, as we explained earlier. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Now, look, we'll speak to you in a minute a bit more about why you're here in Strasbourg this week. But first, for some of our listeners, could you explain your own journey? You were one of the largest investors in Russia at one point, and then it all changed. So I started out from a, with a weird background. I'm originally from the United States from a very unusual family. My grandfather was the head of the American Communist Party. And in my teenage rebellion, I decided to become a capitalist. I went to Stanford Business School and I graduated in 1989, which was the year the Berlin Wall came down. And I thought if my grandfather was the biggest communist in America and the Berlin Wall has come down, I'm going to try to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. I eventually go to move to Moscow. I set up an investment fund and my investment fund, it was called the Hermitage Fund, grows to become the largest investment fund in the country. The problem was that I was invested in all these big Russian companies that we've all heard of now, Gazprom, Sparebank, Lukoil. And I was discovering that in a lot of these companies, the oligarchs were stealing money on an industrial scale in plain sight. And I decided that I wanted to try to stop the stealing. And the way I went about doing that was to expose how they were going about the stealing through exposés in the Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, et cetera. And these exposés, as you can imagine, created a lot of controversy and they really upset a lot of important people. And in 2005, I've been living there for 10 years, 
I was arrested at the border as I was coming into the country from a trip abroad. I was detained at the airport for 15 hours, and then I was deported and declared a threat to national security. After that, my offices were raided. I had a young lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky who um, helped me investigate why they were raiding the offices. And he discovered that the documents that they seized were used in a complex fraud in which a bunch of Russian officials and organized criminals stole $230 million of taxes that my company had paid to the Russian government in the previous year. Sergei testified against the officials involved, and he was subsequently arrested by the same officials he testified against. He was kept in pretrial detention. He was tortured for 358 days, and he was murdered on November 16, 2009, in Russian police custody at the age of 37, leaving a wife and two children. Uh, since then, I've given up my life as a businessman, and I've uh, spent the last 13 years going after the people who killed him to make sure they face justice. And that has resulted in a piece of legislation called the Magnitsky Act. The Magnitsky Act, named after my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, freezes the assets and bans the visas of human rights violators like those who killed Sergei. The original Magnitsky Act was passed in the United States in 2012. It's been expanded beyond Russia. It was just originally from Russia in 2016 to be a global Magnitsky Act. In 2017, the Canadian Parliament unanimously passed a Canadian Magnitsky Act. In 2018, the British Parliament passed a British Magnitsky Act. In 2020, the European Union passed a Magnitsky Act. There are now 35 countries in the world that have Magnitsky Acts, and its template is being used to sanction all of the um, people in the Putin regime, the yeah. oligarchs and the um, corrupt officials who are waging war against Ukraine. So one of the reasons I'm speaking to you here on this podcast is that you have a voice, but part of why you're here in Strasbourg as we speak is that you're representing people who do not have a voice, certain individuals that are imprisoned in Russia and also in Georgia. So tell me more about these political prisoners who you're representing here this week and what you're hoping to get from this visit. So um, there, there are three political prisoners in Russia in no particular order, but the first is Vladimir Karamurza. Vladimir is a Russian opposition activist. His voice was an incredibly powerful voice in getting countries to pass Magnitsky Acts because he spoke from the position of Russian people to say that they didn't want their crooks the guys running their country, the dictators, to be able to steal money from the people. He was so effective that the Russian government, the FSB, the security services, tried to kill him twice with poison. They poisoned him in 2015. He went into coma, multiple organ failure. The doctors gave him a 5% chance of living. He miraculously was able to survive. I begged him never to go back to Russia. He said, how can I not go back? I'm a politician, a Russian politician. I want to fight for my country. They poisoned him again in 2017. And again, he didn't die. And then most recently, after the war started, he was in London. And he's a big character in my second book, Freezing Order. And I was having dinner with him and his wife. And I said, I'd like you to come to – this was last year in March after the war started. And I said, I'd like you to come to speak at the launch of my book, which is coming out next month in Washington. I think you know your story is really important. And he said, I'd be honored to do so. I've just got to go to Moscow beforehand. And I said, you can't go to Moscow. If you go to Moscow, they'll kill you like they've tried twice before. Or at best, they'll arrest you. And he said, how can I stand up to Putin, protest this war, and ask others to do the same if I'm too afraid to go back to my own home country? 
And no matter what I said at that dinner, he was unmoved. He went to Moscow. He went on to CNN. He called Putin a murderer. An hour later, he was arrested. His trial started on Monday. He's facing 24 years in Russian prison for treason. And earlier this week, we heard from his wife, Eugenia Karamoza, who's here in Strasbourg this week. Because, um, as my husband said, and I quote from an article that he wrote for the Washington Post in the summer of 2021, concern of a human rights is not a political whim, a publicity stunt or an exercise in charity. It is a fundamental aspect of international relations inextricably linked to both economic development and security issues. Vladimir Putin is leading two wars at the same time. On the one hand, he's trying to raise Ukraine, a sovereign state of Ukraine, from the face of the earth by committing genocide against the Ukrainian people. On the other hand, he is destroying Russian civil society and trying to eradicate all dissent within the country. Over the past year, over 20... Tell us about who else you're representing here this week. So there's another story which really just just terrifies me, and that's the story of Mikhail Saakashvili. Mikhail Saakashvili was the president of Georgia, and I would argue one of the huge reformers of Georgia, the country of Georgia. And when Putin invaded Georgia in 2008, like he has do, he's doing right now with Ukraine, Saakashvili stood up to Putin. And Putin has had a vendetta against Mikhail Saakashvili ever since. In 2012, Saakashvili willingly relinquished power in a democratic election. And then about a year and a half ago, he returned to Georgia. And in in the meantime, the Georgian government has become extremely Russian-centric. We've seen those protests there earlier this month, people coming out in the streets with EU flags protesting the new foreign agents law that was being introduced and, and has now been suspended for now. The opposition says it will keep fighting against what it sees as Russian-inspired attempts to derail Georgia's pro-European ambitions. It permeates every part of the country. And when Mikhail Saakashvili came back to Georgia a year and a half ago to oppose the Russian-backed government, he was immediately arrested. He was thrown in jail on totally spurious charges. And he's been poisoned in jail He's being tortured in jail with withholding of medical treatment. And I saw an image of him about two months ago, and he's lost half his body weight. It's, it's the most shocking. He's gone from 120 kilos to 60 kilos. And I saw that picture, and I just got so upset that I tweeted out. I said, this reminds me of what happened to Sergei Magnitsky, my lawyer in prison. And a couple of days later, he wrote an open letter to me saying, you know, dear Mr. Browder, can you help me? Can you help save my life? And I was so moved by what's happened to him and his plea for help that I've gotten involved. And I brought his family here, along with Evgenia Karamorza, to highlight their case, but specifically ask for one thing, which, which is the one thing that's in the power of the European Union to do, which is to sanction to impose Magnitsky sanctions on the people who are torturing him. He doesn't have long to live. If, if this carries on, he will die in custody. And it just, this is an urgent, urgent situation. So here's his son, Edward, here in Strasbourg this week. Uh, we were expecting something bad to happen. You know, we knew that there was a likely scenario involving imprisonment or whatever else. Uh, but we didn't 
really count on was that a year later we would be standing here talking about him potentially dying in prison. Um, so it's a very difficult situation that's now corroborated by uh, not just... Uh, just on those sanctions you're, you're calling for on Georgia, I mean, this is a different conversation than asking for sanctions on members of the Putin regime. This is about something that's happening with Georgia, not Russia. Do you feel your message is getting through at the EU level? What kind of pickup are you getting to your suggestion? Or are you confident uh, that they will uh, move to act on this situation? Well, my fear is they're not going to move quickly enough. He's going to die. And then Georgia can kiss any wish of joining the EU goodbye into perpetuity. I mean, it, and, and every member of this government um, will, will find themselves unable to travel, uh, unable to spend their money um, as they're on sanctions list. But I just pray to God that, that it doesn't take his murder for that to happen. I, it would be so judicious for the Georgian authorities to let him out, to let him get medical treatment, and to let this man survive. Just going back a bit, you mentioned there's also another person you're representing here this week. There's one individual who really moved me. His name is Alexei Gornov. Alexei is a, a member of the Moscow City Council. And at the very beginning of the war, there was some discussion at the Moscow City Council about uh, some type of celebration for children. And he said, how can we celebrate children here when we're killing children in Ukraine? For that statement in public in the Moscow City Council, he was arrested and the very first person charged with this new law that Putin passed to say that nobody could call a war, the war in Ukraine, a war. This man was sentenced to seven years in prison as an obvious political prisoner. Uh, the United Nations Special Rapporteur has labeled it a illegal detention. And he symbolizes every Russian who stands up against the war. And the fact that he's sitting there in jail, again, with health problems, means that we need to do everything we can to highlight his case and to get him out and to sanction the people who are involved in it. Generally, what is your view on how the EU approaches sanctions? Do you feel that Europe has done enough when it comes to sanctioning members of Putin regime, Russia, etc.? Well, the Magnitsky Act was passed in 2020. We're in 2023. And the EU, among all the major countries, has the least number of people sanctioned under the Magnitsky Act. There's only 38 people sanctioned under the Magnitsky Act versus like 640 in the United States. The EU is severely trailing other major countries, blocks, etc. It's a shame. EU is thought of as being the most humane and moral of all the country groupings, but they don't want to uphold human rights and they're not using the Magnitsky Act. And I think it's a complete, utter failure on their part not to use this tool, which, which is a very powerful tool. But is it not the case that it's kind of easier, if you like, for the US and Canada sometimes to sanction these people because they may not have assets? You know, it's an easy win or an easy ask for these other countries where it's more difficult for the EU? Well, the EU would say, oh, my God, it's so complicated. We have so many countries. It's like we have to get consensus, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, figure out how to get consensus because this it's a totally dysfunctional system at the moment. And so while the people who have killed Sergei Magnitsky can't travel to the United States, can't travel to the UK, can't travel to Canada. They can come to the south of France. They can go to Italy. They can go to Austria. They can go to Spain with impunity. So finally, as an individual, I mean, do you live in fear for your own life? 
Well, they've threatened me with murder, with kidnapping. The Russians issued eight Interpol arrest warrants. They've been bombarding the British government with extradition requests. There's lawsuits. There's movies. There's trolls. There's so much resources devoted towards trying to destroy my life. I've really got to spend a lot of time and energy warding it off. But in no situation has that in any way blunted my passion for justice for Sergei Magnitsky and justice for these other people because I, can't, I wouldn't be able to live with myself unless I did everything I possibly could. Bill Bryder, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you. Before we go, we're going to bring back in Josh and Hans uh, for our final section, which is looking at some of the Brussels terminology that's used in the European Union, what it means and how to decode it. Now, Josh and Hans don't know we're about to hit them with this question, but here it goes. This is the word of the week. Trilogue. Trilogue. Josh, let's start with you. What is a trilogue? Is it a kind of bike? (laughs) Now, I know you're a transport correspondent, Josh, but get on your EU hat. Uh, It's a lovely meeting that happens all the time, usually running for 24 hours or more at a time without breaks to decide EU laws. Right, Hans? Yeah, it's called Trilog because it brings together the European Parliament, uh, the Council and the Commission and uh, to bring together the different positions on laws. And when do they meet? At what point do Trilog start happening and why do they happen? Well, they meet after they all set out their positions. So the Commission makes a proposal, there it has its position, the Council makes up its position and the Parliament and you, it has its position. Usually they have different positions, so you need to merge them together and find a compromise. And that's as Josh described, it takes very long, sometimes 24 hours to really get a deal there. To hash out a deal. Hash out a, so Josh, for example, we were talking earlier on in the podcast about this proposal about the internal combustion engines. Were trilogues involved in that whole legislative process? Yes, they were. And actually, which is quite funny because this has become a huge uh, political storm right now, but they sailed through relatively easily, actually, on this legislation because at the time people weren't looking carefully enough at the substance. But it's huge transparency issue as well for us, but also for all kind of lobby groups because they're closed meetings. So they're not live streamed and you have to rely on information you get right at the end um, from participants texting out of the room. And this really is, is, I would say, the biggest question over the whole transparency thing in European politics is that the most important meetings over the substance of a law right, right at the end are closed to everybody but those actually inside the room. Interesting point. So in summary, trilogues are meetings between the three institutions on a certain file, the Commission, the Council and Parliament. They all have their positions. They meet in trilogue format. They try and hash out a deal. It's usually at the end of the legislative process, just before the legislation is adopted. So Josh, as you point out, a very important point in the process and and a place where very important changes can be made at the last minute. Okay, thanks for joining us on that, guys. Talk to you again soon. Thanks. See you soon. Bye-bye. And that's all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow us and subscribe to EU Confidential wherever you're listening. And do keep your ideas and feedback coming. You can email us at podcast at politico.eu. This week's episode was produced and edited by our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks also to Zoe Bass. I'm Suzanne Lynch in Strasbourg. See you next week. <laughs>